I learned how to drive back in the day when they had driver's education classes in high school, and then after taking the class, then uh, some over-the-road experience, and then my dad taught me how to drive. Who, who taught you how to drive? Would you take just a moment and turn to someone near you and tell them who taught you how to drive? Would you just do that? Take a moment. <clears throat> I just said, driver's ed and my dad. Were you not paying attention? Come on, come on. So how many of you were taught by a relative? Let me see your hands. How many of you were taught by a class? Let me see your hands. How many had to pay to, have driver, to learn how to drive? How many of you had to retake a class to learn how to drive? Well, if my wife were honest, uh, she would tell you that I taught her how to drive. Uh, this this uh, was a, is a car. Uh, this is uh, a Plymouth Valiant, and uh, shortly after we were married, I risked it all and taught her how to drive. Uh, I took her down to the Wyandotte Police, the DMV, and she took the written test first. It was Friday afternoon after she got off work, one of the last uh, hours of the day, and I noticed that the instructors, the testers who gave the over-the-road test were kind of in a hurry to get the last test done and get home. So when she took her test and passed and we scheduled her, her road test, I scheduled her for the last slot on Friday afternoon. So I picked her up from work and, and we drove down to the DMV and parked alongside the curb on, in the street and went in. The uh, tester uh, got her name and they went out to the car and by the time they got out to the car, someone had parked behind her and in front of her. So the instructor said, oh, I see you can parallel park so we don't have to do that. <laughs> True story. Uh, th then they went out on the road test and uh, the, uh, uh, the road test was only half as long as it should have been because the right rear tire was starting to go flat and it was starting to rain and the tester said, I'm not changing that tire in this rain. So let's get back to the, to the office. So Kathy had a shortened road test and passed, and guess who had to change the flat tire in the rain? <laughs> so that was when she learned how to drive, a, the, the Plymouth Valiant. A couple of years later, uh, we bought a uh, Gremlin, an AMC Gremlin. <laughs> now, uh, the AMC Gremlin, lovely colored purple, don't you love it? So um, the difference between the Gremlin and the Valiant was that the Valiant was automatic transmission and the Gremlin was stick shift. So I had to teach my wife all over again how to drive a car. Now, it's, it's not that she didn't know how to steer and, and maneuver a car and brake and things like that, but driving a stick shift is a whole different way of driving. And, I mean, there's something you've got to do with your right hand, and there's that third pedal, what's that for? And your left foot has to work the clutch. And, uh, you know, getting that timing down was not always what it should be in the early stages. And uh, I would say on occasion, oh, sounds good, grind me a pound. But uh, <laughs> So it was driving a car, but it wasn't driving in the same way. And if you stop to think about it, Someone who comes to faith in Christ 
at whatever stage in life, they might be, have lived 5, 10, 15, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and they come to Christ. They've lived a while. They, they know how to live. I mean, they've existed. They've uh, eaten. They've gotten a job. They've, all, so many things happen. In life. They're used to living. But when you come to Christ, it changes the way that you're used to living. And that's what I want you to remember this morning. If you don't remember anything else that I say, it's that meeting Jesus changes the way that we're used to living. These changes are usually intentional. That means that you, you choose to make those choices. We, we chose to buy a stick shift. It was probably in, less expensive than an automatic transmission, and it was the car available to us at the time. But these are intentional changes. These are, these are also countercultural changes. They're, they're not the way we're used to doing it. They're not what our society teaches us. That's not what culture says you ought to be doing and the way you ought to live your life. And these changes are recurring. That is, they're lifelong. These changes don't just happen when you meet Christ. They continue to happen the rest of your life. And I don't care if you've been a Christian for five minutes or five years or 50 years. These are changes that need to be recurring in our lives. To give you an example of these changes, let me take you to Luke chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles and want to turn there, we're going to look at the story of Peter. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And as you turn there, let me give you a little background to this chapter. In Luke 5, Jesus is returning to the northern part of his country, up near the Sea of Galilee, from the southern part of his country. Uh, he's resuming his healing and teaching ministry. This time, it's by the Sea of Galilee, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And that's because not only are the crowds getting larger and they no longer fit into the synagogue where he had been teaching before, but because the people in the synagogue were becoming a bit uh, oppositional to Jesus. Uh, they were influenced by the rulers and the priests and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the big synagogue in the south, and they were being influenced by that, and now Jesus was no longer welcome in their synagogue. And so Jesus was down teaching by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, drawing from about 91 square miles around him uh, of people, that uh, population, about 15,000 people in the nine towns that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. And they were coming, Luke will tell us, they're coming not because Jesus has the words of another rabbi, but because Jesus has the word of God. And so he's worth listening to. He's worth hearing. One other thing interesting of note that you might want to keep in the back of your head as we move through this passage is that the Sea of Galilee was about uh, 64 square miles. And historians tell us that at any one time there uh, could have been uh, as many as 230 boats on the Sea of Galilee, each of them about 20 to 30 feet long, having four to five fishermen in it, which meant at any one time there might have been anywhere from 900 to 1,000 fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. That becomes important because later we'll read that Jesus picked Simon's boat out of all those boats uh, to, be, to be a part of. So let's begin reading the story, beginning in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put a little out from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, let me pause here to say that this is the second teaching session 
that Jesus had in this morning. The first one was on land, the crowds got large, he moved to the boat, and most historians believe that it was in a cove area with uh, somewhat of a hill slanting up to the rest of the topography where Jesus' voice would carry over the water, plus there'd be a bit of an amphitheater where it was easier for him to be heard. So Jesus is there teaching, beginning at uh, picking the story up at verse 4. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, haven't caught a thing, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. And when they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. When Peter met Jesus, everything changed. Beginning with, Jesus, with Peter saying these words, which given Peter's ego, we might have never expected to come out of his mouth. Peter said, I am a sinful man. The Greek word armatarlos is sin, done wrong, I'm guilty. Peter was admitting this publicly enough so that someone else could hear it and record it. Peter was being honest about himself, maybe for the first time. But this is the first difference in our lives when we meet Jesus, that we are honest about ourselves. That's where our relationship with him begins. Do you know how hard it is to admit you're wrong? Do you know how hard it is to ask someone else for forgiveness? Do you know how hard it is to say I'm sorry to someone else? Someone once said that uh, a married man should forget his mistakes. No sense in two people remembering everything. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. About a year and a half into our marriage, I quit telling Kathy, I'm sorry. I, I quit asking forgiveness. I quit saying I was wrong. I had my reasons, but it didn't matter because there was about an eight-month period. I say eight months because I remember when it all ended. Couldn't tell you exactly when it began. But I'll tell you what happened in those eight months. It froze our communication lines. Love does mean having to say you're sorry. Do you know how hard it is for us to admit we're wrong? Do you know how hard it is for us to say, I'm, I'm, I'm sinful, I've done wrong? But do you know how important it is for us to be honest with ourselves? First to God, then about ourselves, to ourselves, and then to others? Jim Powell, not the worship pastor, former worship pastor at Neighborhood Church, wrote these words in his book, Dirt Matters. When I am unaware of the deep recesses of my life, it is easy for me to think I'm doing better than I really am or that I am better than I really am. And when I think that I'm doing better than I really am, it is easy for me to think that I do not need God as much as I really do. Meeting Jesus, for difference number one, being honest with ourselves. And I want to tell you that this was not the last time that Peter was honest with himself. Remember I said this, these are recurring differences, recurring changes in our lives. When uh, the Gospel of Mark was written, most people suspect that Mark took sermons that Peter was speaking 
Mark was writing them down. Peter was teaching about the ministry of Jesus and about being a disciple and the ministry and life of Jesus and that Mark, while Peter was in Rome in his prison days, was marking these down and it became the Gospel of Mark. Do you know how many times in the Gospel of Mark we read about an embarrassing moment in Peter's life? Not trusting Jesus, walking on water, rebuking Jesus for talking about dying, denying Jesus three times. You see, being honest about yourself, this is late in Peter's life when he's still remembering these events and having them recorded. And he's not the only one. Every other gospel writer talks about the disciples who, who fell flat on their faces. They shared their ups and downs. They shared their wrongs. They're embarrassing moments. Who would do that? Here you are, you're, you're writing a document that will, you hope will encourage other people to become followers of Jesus. And you're talking about your wrongs. You're being honest about yourself. You're being transparent about yourself. Who would want to follow a Christ who has disciples like that? But these disciples knew that our relationship with Jesus begins with our being honest about ourselves. And it doesn't quit. It, it's recurring. It's, it's lifelong. When uh, John Piper wrote his book, Desiring God, he talked about this dynamic. In his study of the Psalms, he identified the five sequences of worship in the Psalms. This is what he wrote. The first stage is this stunning response to God's majesty. Then comes the awe and reverence of his holiness. And then comes honesty, confession, grief, conviction, over our sin, being honest with God, being honest about our anger, being honest about how we've offended people, first being, first being honest with him. And then comes a longing for God, for what he has to offer the broken sinner, and then gladness and gratitude and forgiveness and reconciliation and hope for what's ahead. Listen, being honest about yourself isn't a downer. It's not a, a human degradation response. It's not dragging yourself in the mud. It's the first step in a restored relationship to who you can become and who you can really be. David wrote this of his own experience in Psalm 32 from the message. When I kept it all inside, my bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life dried up. Then I let it out. I said, I'll make a clean breast of my failures to God. Suddenly the pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved. My sin disappeared. Being honest about ourselves is freeing. Years ago in my second assistant pastorate, I was a youth pastor, and uh, there was, I felt pressure to perform. I felt pressure uh, in my position and my status. And I found myself wearing a mask. I found myself not being honest about myself. And I want to tell you, it was tiring. It was tiring to pretend. And so I decided one day, God, I told God, look, if I can't be who I am in the church, I'm getting out. And I was in seminary. I was training to be a, a churchman. I'm, I'm, I'm getting out. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving if I can't be myself. I'm, I'm going to take the mask off, and whoever I am on the inside, that's who I am. A couple of things happened when I started being honest about myself. The first thing that happened was that I found out when the 
real me inside came out, I didn't like the real me. The real me was uh, argumentative. The real me was proud. The real me, I didn't like me. And so I turned to God and said, God, would you please help change me? I've, I've covered it up. I've pretended. I've masked it these years. Now I see who I am, and I need your help. I need your spirit to help me become who you want me to be. The second thing that happened is when the real me came out, um, I, I, would, I found myself offending people. And as the real me, and I was in, in, in a ministry position in the church, and I found myself having to go back to people and say, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me for that attitude? Will you forgive me for what I said? Will you forgive me for the way I acted? And I want to tell you, there is no more greater motivation to live a holy life than to have to go back and ask people for forgiveness every time you offend them and every time you've done, done them wrong. But it's a freeing. It's, it's freeing to do that. Like, like David, take the mask off. Here's, here's another dynamic. So many people accuse the church of being full of hypocrites. You know what a hypocrite is? A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something they're not. Now, granted, there are people in the church, I was one of them, and I have to, you know, always wrestle with it, who pretend to be something they're not. But you know what the rest of us are? We are people who intend to be something we're not. The world sometimes confuses those two, but we are people who intend, not pretend, intend to be something we're not. And if we are intending to be something we're not, we're honest, first of all, honest, about ourselves. That's one of the first recurring, lifelong, countercultural differences because the temptation is to blame someone else. The temptation is to cover it over, to call it something else. But the difference when we meet Jesus begins and recurs is being honest about ourselves. There's a second difference in, uh, in Peter's story. You remember in verse 5 when we read, Jesus called, uh, uh, Peter called Jesus master, means teacher. Uh, it's a respectful word, but it's a word that talks about someone who's more comfortable in a synagogue than in a fishing boat. And so Peter calls Jesus teacher to kind of um, show Jesus respect, but to keep Jesus in his place. I mean, after all, Jesus was a woodworking rabbi. He wasn't a fisherman. What did he know? I mean, when he told the, uh, Peter and his cohorts to push out into the deep and let down the nets, it was daytime, and Palestinian fishermen usually know the best time to fish is at night when the sun doesn't reflect off the water and they're able to see the schools of fish a bit better. Palestinian fishermen know the best place to fish is not out in the deep, but it's around the shores, around the shallow water where the fish come in to feed off the minnows. I mean, Jesus is a good teacher. I'll give him that, Peter might have said. You almost catch the tone of voice that, Jesus, you really don't know what you're talking about in my boat. You're better on land. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll give you that uh, you may know something about teaching, but you don't know a lot about fishing. P this, this phrase, teacher, allowed Peter to still be in charge to show Jesus respect. It's a term that protected Peter's ego. I'm still master of my ship. I'm still master of my boat. But then did you notice in verse 8 that Peter doesn't call Jesus master, he calls him now Lord. Greek word kurios means someone who's in charge, someone worthy of worship, someone in control, someone who knows what he's doing. 
Peter calls Jesus Lord. It's the first time in the Gospel of Luke that we read about Peter calling Jesus Lord. Now, Peter had seen other miracles. He had seen um, uh, the healing of the person who was possessed of demons. He had seen the healing of his mother-in-law and been glad about it. He had seen those. He was uh, used to Jesus doing that kind of stuff. So why was it this miracle that caused Peter to call Jesus Lord? It wasn't that they caught fish. I mean, that's the way Peter made his living. I think it was when and where and how much. So overwhelming was this display of Jesus' power, of Jesus being in control, where Peter wished he were in control, that caused Peter to fall to his knees and call Jesus Lord. Now remember, I said these are recurring differences, recurring changes. There were times, you can probably remember some of them, when Peter kind of went back on that word. He kind of took back control. Jesus wasn't as much Lord as he was a teacher, and then sometimes we can question what he was teaching. I mean, we can talk about the fact that this was a, a challenge for Peter for the rest of his life to call Jesus Lord. But by the time we get to the two letters that he wrote toward the end of, his, of the New Testament and toward the end of his life, six times in his first letter, 14 times in his second, he refers to Jesus as Lord. You and I may not always get it right, but we're talking about the second difference in our lives is that we call Jesus Lord, the one in charge, the one in control. This is counterculture. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We don't want Jesus to be in control. But that's who Jesus is. He, he, he is Lord. And as Peter learned, he deserves to be called Lord. The um, experience of Dwight Eisenhower during World War II illustrates the importance of you knowing who Lord is. When they were planning the uh, D-Day invasion of Normandy, um, Eisenhower was put in charge. He was the supreme commander of the uh, Allied Expeditionary Forces. And um, he was in charge of the French, Canadian, English, um, and American forces that uh, stormed the Normandy beaches. When that announcement was made, some of the British commanders didn't exactly like that arrangement, and so they suggested, or were demanding, that when Eisenhower gave an order, they had the option of referring back to their own British authorities to say, is this okay? Or, we don't like this command, can we have it changed? And Eisenhower realized this was no way to run a war. And so Wallace Carroll, in his book about World War II, and Eisenhower wrote this about Eisenhower's response. Everyone who came into Eisenhower's theater, whether military or civilian, American or British, had to forsake old allegiances and submit to the authority of the theater commander. Eisenhower knew that winning a war meant having one commander, one person in charge. And when we call Jesus Lord, what we are saying is the only way to run a life is one Lord. My debts can't be my Lord. A dysfunctional relationship in my life can't be Lord, can't be calling the shots. 
Personal preferences can't be Lord. Addictions can't be Lord. Repeating patterns can't be Lord. Jesus needs to be Lord. This is difference number two. And I might even put it this way. We begin to call Jesus Lord because it is a lifelong process. We've seen that Peter's doubts about Jesus turn to doubts about himself, and he says, go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. This is the third difference that comes as we begin to follow Jesus. I can suppose that we could uh, read Peter's mind and his self-talk at this point. It would be something like this. Jesus, you know what? You don't want me to follow you. If you really knew who I was, you wouldn't want me to follow you. Um, you wouldn't want me to do your work. You wouldn't want me to be a disciple. So, so go away. Let's, let's cut this off right here. How did Jesus respond to that self-talk, to that despair? Remember what he said in verse 10 and 11? He told Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled up their boats to shore and left everything and followed him. Peter said, I'll follow you. I'll, I'll, I'll go with you. Now, I want to tell you, that this is, again, a recurring decision that we make. Because Peter, later in John chapter 20, after rumors of Jesus being raised from the dead filter through the disciples, Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to fishing. And it's there on the beach, you remember the story, where Jesus met Peter and asked him three times, do you love me? And three times Peter said yes and called him Lord each time. And then Jesus three times said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Peter had a choice to make, an ongoing choice, a recurring choice. Not just at the Sea of Galilee in Luke 5, but late in life, continuing to make that daily choice to call Jesus Lord, to do what he was asking him to do. So here's the third difference. We say yes to what Jesus is asking us to do. Whatever Jesus you're wanting me to do, I, I will say yes to. And if there's, if there's anything that Peter's story can tell us, it's that no matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus can use you. Jesus has something for you to do. And it works like this, out of Peter's story once, more, once again. Sometimes Jesus will take something that you do and ask you to do it for him. Peter did boats. He, he did nets. He did fish. And when Jesus said, can I use your boat? Peter said, yeah, you can use my boat. Sometimes Jesus will take what you do and ask you to do it for him. Uh, Josh Wilson wrote a book, uh, wrote a, a song with these lyrics, Christian artist. He said, dream small. Don't bother like you've got to do it all. Just let Jesus use you where you are. One day at a time, find little ways where only you can help with his great love. Jim Harold was a chief engineer at the Watergate uh, complex after the break-in, and uh, he was a great Mr. Fix-It. He could fix cars, air conditioners, plumbing, you name it, he could fix it. And so when Jim began uh, to grow in Christ and his faith in the church, he came to me one day and said, Rich, I'd, I'd love to serve people. Could I be an elder? He said, but I don't know if I can be an elder because basically I'm good with my hands. Uh, I said, you know, let's, let's talk to the elders and let's pray about it. And so eventually Jim became an elder. And in our church, 
uh, the elders were responsible for a group of families in the church. And Jim's ministry to these families began to be, hey, Jim, they would call him up. Could, could you come fix my plumbing? Could you come fix my car? And Jim would tell me story after story of working in someone's house or leaning over the hood of a car and fixing it and having a, a conversation, a caring conversation, a pastoring conversation, a discipling conversation with someone uh, as he was fixing the car, fixing the plumbing, fixing the air conditioning, whatever it was that he was doing. He took something he was already doing and he did it for Jesus. Sometimes Jesus will ask you to do something that you're already doing but now you do it for him. Sometimes Jesus will ask you to take something you're already doing and take it beyond your comfort zone. Uh, Peter uh, and his cohorts uh, could have understood what Jesus had to say when he said, uh, cast out into the deep and uh, uh, throw out your nets. The, the words that are used by Luke there in, indicate these are, are fishing terms that these fishermen would have known that wasn't strange to them, but was what was strange to them, as we've seen, is where and when they were going to do it. Add to that the fact that we read that they were on shore washing their nets after a night of unsuccessful fishing. These fishermen had no idea, no plans to go back out. And yet Peter said, okay, it, it, master, if this is what you want, this is what we'll do. But it was pressing Peter beyond his comfort zone. And sometimes Jesus will take something you're doing and press you beyond your comfort zone to do it for him. Years ago when I was a youth pastor, I took a van full of teenagers to uh, the Appalachian Mountains of Kentucky to do a one week uh, of ministry at Beef Hide Gospel Mission. Uh, I'm serious. Uh, and the, the kids were trained in doing backyard Bible clubs and so we would go back into the hoots and hollers of the Appalachian and they would, I would drop them off and they would do their five day Bible clubs in the afternoon we'd do some physical labor around the campgrounds. Miss Worley was in charge of the, of the ministry, and she had a 15-minute, once-a-week radio program on the 1,000-watt radio station just down the road. And she took all of us with her, and uh, she was going to do the first program live, and then she turned to me and said, Rich, would you do the next two, and, and we'll tape them, about a seven, ten-minute devotional. And, uh, you know, I'm in seminary, I'm planning, preparing to be a preacher, so I can't say no. And uh, so we, we entered the radio station. She got in the radio, uh, the sound booth, and did her 15 minutes. And I listened as Miss Worley preached country. Now, if you've ever listened to Appalachian preachers, uh, you know what I'm talking about. It was my turn to preach the 12-minute, 10-minute sermonette. And I said, God, you're going to have to help me because this is not the way they taught us to preach in seminary. Uh, and I began preaching, and it came out country. And my teenagers on the other side of the soundproof glass, I remember their eyes getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What have they done to my youth pastor? Both radio programs were recorded. We went home and Miss Worley said, tonight, Rich, I'd love you to speak at our Wednesday night prayer service at church. Okay, and one more time, I preached country. Now, I want to tell you, I have never preached country since, nor do I think I want to. But after I got done with that third time preaching country, Miss Worley came to me and said, Rich, you are a born country preacher. When you finish seminary, would you come back and be pastor at the Virgie Church in Kentucky? Sometimes God will take something you're already doing and take you beyond your comfort zone. He, he will take it and use it for his glory. Let him push you. Follow him. 
Difference number three is we say yes to when Jesus asks us to do something. The last illustration from Peter's life for us is that sometimes God will ask us to do something we never thought we could do. Jesus said to Peter, don't be afraid. Come follow me. You'll be a fisher of people. And what did Peter do? Something he never thought he would do. He left his nets and followed Jesus. Now, um, he's good with his hands. He's good with fish. He could manage four or five people in a boat. But becoming a, a fisher for people? I, that's something way, way, way beyond his comfort zone. Maybe Peter wasn't as much a people person as he thought. Sometimes God will take you way beyond your comfort zone. Some of you know that five years ago I retired from Simpson University and stepped into the world of interim pastoring. The first opportunity was offered by our district in Las Vegas, Nevada. Kathy worked in Reading. I had to go there. I remember the night we stood in my living room before the next morning I was going to board a Reading plane heading to Las Vegas through San Francisco, which is always an adventure. And um, I remember us uh, standing in the room. We were hugging each other and praying, and I'm saying, what have I gotten myself into? I mean, I'm going to be away from Kathy longer than I've ever been away from her. She'll visit, I'll visit, but the bottom line is that this is, this is, this is way, way beyond my... I'm a family guy. I'm a home guy. And this is way, way beyond my comfort zone. Jesus was asking us that we knew he was asking us. He put it in our heart to do but this was, didn't make it any easier or any less scary. So sometimes Jesus will ask you to do something that you have never done before, you never thought you'd do. But the difference in our lives, beginning when we meet him, is that we say yes to Jesus, what he's asking us to do. So here's what I want you to remember. Meeting Jesus will change the way you're used to living. You'll say yes to him, you'll call him Lord, you'll be honest for the rest of your life. Lee Strobel was, uh, in the late 70s, an award-winning legal editor at Chicago Tribune. His wife became a Christian, and Lee identified himself as being an atheist. And so he set about attempting to disprove his wife's faith. In this dramatization, Lee comes home and meets Jesus, but attempts to explain to his wife his project. 